Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. This week's episode is a little different as we cross the streams and bring you the Bloomcast holiday special from our sister podcast, Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses. This was a huge, slightly unhinged project we ran in the first six months of this year to celebrate the centenary of the publication of Ulysses by Sylvia Beach at Shakespeare and Company. At its heart was an unabridged audio recording of James Joyce's masterwork, read by more than 100 writers, artists and performers. The readers include Sally Rooney, Margaret Atwood, Stephen Fry, Eddie Izzard, Ben Okri, Holly McNish, Kay Tempest, Ethan Hawke, Pete Buttigieg, Bonnie Greer, Joanna Lumley and many, many, many more. Alongside this, with my co-conspirators Lex Paulson and Alice McCrum, we recorded Bloomcast, a 10-episode deep dive into Ulysses, with an eye to helping first-timers make it through and old-timers discover the book anew, as well as a handful of bonus episodes and interviews. So if you've ever started reading Ulysses and given up, or if you fancy seeing it with new eyes, have a listen to this episode, and then look up Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses wherever you get your podcasts. When I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord Jesus. Stately plump bug mulligan. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Okay, we're going to dub in um, sleigh bells on top of this. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> Twas the night of the 16th, and down Echo Street, not a sound could be heard except for four feet. They belonged to two men, one called Leopold Bloom, and one Stephen Dedalus, in search of a room. It had been quite a day for the two men, all told which had followed the contours of legends of old. There were giants to slay and monsters to conquer, and a fair virgin maid, not that Bloom tried to bonk her. (laughs) Unbonked. Young Stephen had wrestled the agonbite of Inwit, and a flatmate called Mulligan, a bit of a dimwit. There'd been Shakespearean chatter that our student found risible, not to mention the ineluctable modality of the visible. For Bloom there were gizzards and a bath full of lather, all indulged in to fend off the grief of a father. 
And let's not forget the shame of the cuckold, stoked by visions of Boylan with trousers unbuckled. When they'd finally met, Bloom had found Stephen listless, until he was faced with the massive whore mistress. There'd been gossipy soap and a horse known as throwaway, and a talkative cabman with his tales of a stowaway. And much more besides, you get the gist. But now they are home, and still rather pissed. And because they can't handle the force of the Nostos, they pee up the wall and stare at the cosmos. Then Stephen goes home, and that's about it. Except, no, it's not, we're forgetting a bit. For two floors above, Molly's snug in her bed, a cascade of visions aflame in her head. They speak not a word, but Bloom gives her a kiss. With melons like those, there's no way he can miss. <laughs> Nothing is changed, yet all somehow redressed. After a decade of no's, she thinks 80 times, yes. Outside on the cobbles stands a man in a mac, with a patch on one eye and a Panama hat, who says to himself as he strolls out of sight, happy Bloomsday to all, and to all a good night. Oh, well done. Well done. <laughs> or in other words, welcome to the Bloomcast holiday special. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Good to be back. And two things about that. I wrote that between 10 p.m. and midnight last night. So apologies if it doesn't completely scan. That's a tour de force. Also apologies for the use of the word bonk, which I don't think I've ever seen outside of the British tabloid newspapers. But, uh, but as I say, it was late and I was under pressure. Yes, so, brilliantly um, done. Brilliantly done. Welcome back, everybody. It has been six months. Obviously, the divas that we are, we haven't been in touch. We've all been off to our various trailers since then. I've managed to coax you back with your um, obsessive riders. Here you go, Alice. Here is your bowl of a thousand yellow M&Ms, hand-sorted. So, you know... Orange Smarties. Orange Smarties, damn. (laughs) And where's my Thai massage? I asked specifically for that hot stone massage. And now you mention it. So, how's it been, guys? Lex, you're a father. I'm a father. Um, I have a little daughter, and uh, as we said in that in that uh, in the podcast episode on on Penelope, um, she's a she's a wonder and descends from uh, ancestors in the Atlas Mountains and was born in Paris, and now she's here. And uh, of course, it's changed everything. And I was saying to Alice a moment ago that it's it couldn't have been. Um, a better time to do a podcast where we're plumbing the depths of a great work of literature because in a sense I had to reckon with everything that I believe and everything that I am in that uh, in those 10 episodes that we did together and um, Alice as you asked me is you know do I feel different or I'm acting different I feel like in a sense I'm acting with a lot with a much greater self-knowledge than this time a year ago and I think it's because of reading this book with you guys. Mm-hmm. I've got a question for you, actually, Lex, which really struck me in the first six months or so, and I think in a quite tangential way connects to Ulysses, is that I think probably like me, your approach, your engagement with life is a very intellectual one. And my experience was that in the first six months, of, well, first nine months, really, of being with a baby, there's no real intellectual engagement. Uh, it can be intellectualized after the fact, but it is very, I found it a very mechanical, very animal, very emotional, very instinctual experience. And I was wondering, was that a similar thing for you? And is it, am I being, is it too tangential to connect that uh, part of what's underway in Ulysses? Well, I, Alice, you, um, I think, rather definitively defined uh, me as the id of the podcast. <laughs> 
So as the id of, of this podcast, I can say that claim, having a baby, having a baby, you know, you know, mewling and puking, as, as Shakespeare put it, um, it was, uh, yeah, was was a reminder of that we're bodies, you know, and I think yeah, reading Molly Bloom is great practice in that sense for uh, for for being a parent, um, because you can't have any disgust or shame when you are a parent. You oh, just no. have to go with it. You just have to go with it. Alice. What have you been up to? Oof, what Apart I'm... from all the eating all those orange snacks. <laughs> I think I was thinking about this earlier today. And I think if anything, the last six months, I've become even more concerned about questions around the environment and climate. And I think in some ways, the bloom cast this spring was an outlet for me to start to put in order those thoughts. And the summer in particular, you know, in June, that was our last time we met. It was already very hot. And then, of course, we had this mad summer where France was on fire. England was on fire. A, a beluga whale showed up in the Eura River. And I remember also at the end of the summer, the Le Monde published an article. And the title of the article um, was basically The End of Recklessness. Um, and I think for me, this summer was comparable to the COVID spring you know, the spring of 2020 in the sense that it really felt like a threshold through which the world passed. And I certainly felt like I was passing, um, that this really will, I really believe this is the defining issue of the 21st century. And so I've really been spending the last six months reflecting on how to intervene most usefully in that discussion. Yeah. You've been, you've been influencing me a lot too. And when we talked about systems and, um, something that you brought up again and again really helpfully I think for for my reading of the book and uh, I read this summer um, a book of uh, it's actually management theory by an MIT professor named Peter Senga called the fifth discipline and it's all about how to apply a systems worldview to problems of organizational um, development and, and organizational psychology and now I'm reading a book called thinking in systems by Donella Meadows who was one of the the pioneering figures in the field in the 19, uh, 1980s and 90s. And everywhere I look now, I think because of Ulysses and because I think of you having drawn my attention to that in the book, um, I see individuals as embedded in systems and, and the dynamics of systems being so much more illuminating than blaming individuals for individual actions, but at rather putting those actions in a context. And I feel like James Joyce, God, he was so far ahead at this time. I mean, not just vegetarianism and and you know pacifism and public transit, but um, but this systemic worldview, right? And that if we're trying to solve any big problem from climate change to poverty to you know to gender-based violence, um, we have to understand systems and how systems um, affect individuals within them, and and that it's not by punishing individual people that we're going to change a system. It's by understanding how systems work. So. It's such an interesting point to you because something else I've been thinking of the last six months is, um, yes, acknowledging the systemic level of problems, but then addressing then how to how to reconcile the global level with the individual um, addressing of problems. And particularly from a policy perspective, you know, because I'm coming to the end finally of my studies of public policy. Um, it's a real challenge for policymakers because on the one hand, if you unite cities or countries or even localities together at the global level, there's a real force and a unifying power, but ultimately they have to be addressed locally. So how do you reconcile systemic problems with, with local solutions? And 
it's uh, it will be the subjects of my thesis. Mm. So I'm not. And do you think Ulysses gives you some insight into how to reconcile those two? I think. Well, I was just thinking as you were speaking about um, Joyce alerting us to the systemic nature of things, but then also thinking about how what's so wonderful is how it finds its way into the portrait of lives within a day. So he's already reconciling it, right? Because he's he's bringing this macro um, thinking down to the micro level of everyday living. Yeah. And then there's the, the big ethical question, the big you know, of the entire book, which is, you know, Bloom knows that his wife is having an affair. What should he do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, in the Odyssey, um, Odysseus and, and Telemachus wreak this violence on the suitors and Bloom... Um, as you always said, Adam is uh, part of an anti-Odyssey that that he gives a fundamentally different response. And instead of being angry and lashing out either at Molly or 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 Boylan, he takes his own responsibility and he sees in in all these ways in which Molly's behavior is not really about him and it's not really about Boylan. It's about a whole range of factors, including her not having a mother, her having lost a child, the two of them having lost a child and not having been able to deal with it. And and so it's in seeing his own situation as part of a larger system of, of actions and events that allows him to act in this more mature way and ultimately in a way that's going to be more helpful in actually um, healing the marriage. And so it's the ethical aspect of like what it's like to live in a system that I think is, it's so hard, right? Because you see people who are doing things that you think are wrong and you want to punish them. You want to like go after them. And sure, people should be held responsible for their actions. But um, if you really want to change things, you have to take that higher level view. And Joyce, you know, literally takes us into the stars exactly. and looks at Dublin from above. And 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 we he, he's training us. I mean, you said this also, Adam, that, you know, he he's writing a book to, to train us how to read it. Mm-hmm. He trains us how to, how to read it as we're reading it. And so... This is this is I think the uh, this is what the, the a wisdom text does and Declan Kybert says you know like all great wisdom texts you know Ulysses is a thousand things for for a thousand different people um, and also gives the warning against its own fetishization you know that we shouldn't take it too seriously all the time that uh, we shouldn't um, turn it into an object of 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 you know holy authority we should be um, uh, we should be inspiring ourselves. Yeah. The other thing that's totally radically changed in my life is I now drink Jen Maitre tea every morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a total As we're doing right now, Jen Maitre addict. Um, and if if we didn't note this, but it sustained us all through the spring. I didn't even know what it was. And then I felt this real absence in my life after the podcast. I mean, it was probably, I'm probably filling the absence of seeing you with <laughs> Jen Maitre tea. It was all part um, of a grand systemic plan. I have, I have shares exactly right. in... Uh, the yeah, in Gen Maitre Limited. Um, I would say one thing it's it's done for me, it's just it's made me incredibly impatient with bad books and bad <laughs> writing. Um, and it, this happens occasionally, and I can cite a few other examples. Uh, one was the first time I read Tristram Shandy, and I just came out of it being like, what, who is writing realist, straightforward, you know, three-act three structure novels any like what this book was written 300 years ago what have you people been doing in between time was nobody paying attention the second time was when i first studied wittgenstein and had that sense and you know it's actually quite a quite a destructive effect on my life because suddenly this was when i was an undergraduate and was suddenly all of my essays were written from what i considered a wittgensteinian perspective and suddenly came in with 
very very bad marks because um, because I was suddenly no longer playing the playing the game. But but it made me impatient with so much other philosophy. And in a similar way, I, I think often of um, what something that Tom McCarthy said on the collaboration we did with the LRB on the second of February on the, the anniversary of the the centenary of the the publication was that he said like his idea was that Joyce essentially tried to finish off the novel with Ulysses to essentially do everything a novel could do and basically render the fawn redundant. And what Tom said was actually he did the opposite. He sort of broke it open and rendered its possibilities infinite. And I, and I think I, I agree with him. But then when you read a lot of novels, as, as, I, as I do you know, in my job, but also just in my life, and you find people not taking advantage of the possibilities of the novel broken as it was broken open by people like Joyce and, you know, and other and other genius writers. Yeah, it's rendered me an incredibly impatient, uh, impatient reader. Yeah, it's also it, this has passed now, but I was reading a few weeks ago a bit of writing that I'd done not long after finishing reading this book embarrassingly <laughs> sub-Joycean <laughs> rubbish. Like it was, you know, I've got that out of my system, but wow. Um, actually, that makes me think of Wittgenstein again, because in, I think it's in Ray Monk's biography of him, he talks about how basically Wittgenstein was so charismatic. At Cambridge, he had this kind of, these acolytes who started to to speak like him and yeah. dress like him. Richard and even, Russell said it was, you know, God came on the 4 p.m. train from right. King's Cross. And like even, even walk like him. And, and, and I think, I, I felt that a little bit, sort of having spent so much time with Ulysses, was like, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to do this. And of course, that isn't the point to uh, to, to, to to sort of to ape what Joyce did. But um, but yeah, so it left me it left me really really impatient, I think, as a reader. But I I hope in a good way. Well, as the as the novelist among the three of us, Adam, we are looking forward to seeing how <laughs> how Joyce is going to insinuate his way into your next uh, into your next work. Subtly, I hope. <laughs> Um, one thing I was going to talk about as well was, and I don't know if you guys have any examples of this, but it's, you know, sometimes when you learn a new word and then suddenly you're hearing that word everywhere. When we came out of Ulysses, suddenly, you know, maybe unsurprisingly, um, being the centenary year, but I was sort of seeing references to the book everywhere, but also not just in sort of contemporary stuff, but uh, I'm going back at the moment and editing some of the interviews um, I've done over the years for a, for a book that that's coming out. And the amount of writers who refer to Ulysses in one way or another, suddenly having joined the club in a way, you suddenly notice the the secret handshake. And it might just be little subtle references that maybe you didn't pick up on before. But it's fascinating to see in the writers that I really admire the depth of his of his influence. Mm. No, you're in the club with um, with Sally Rooney and Declan Kybert and Mick Jagger. <laughs> I take that class. <laughs> <Sorry about that. laughs> I wouldn't say address. Seven, <laughs> seven, <laughs> seven it's curious. I don't know that I was really seeing lots of Ulysses references. I was though really, I think, attuned to sounds this summer. I mean, I as soon as you were saying that, this this example jumped into my head, which was um I was in Maine, which is a really beautiful state in the North of America for any non-American listeners. Um and I was on this dock. And I'd go kind of in the morning, early in the morning, and every morning it would kind of creak. And mm. and I was thinking that was just one example of one noise that I was hearing kind of rhythmically throughout the summer. And I was wondering how you would render that on the page and how Joyce would have described it. Um, so more like habits. Ha like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just kind of um, habits of thinking 
Yeah. I, I felt trained. I felt like my mind had been trained, certainly from an auditory perspective. I, I this summer I also as I was walking around with my with my new baby around Paris in, in August, which is a great time to walk around Paris because it's mostly deserted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and listening to us us chat about the chapters in the book, but then the chapters in the book bringing us into so many questions of society and gender and politics and and literature. And I, I just realized that um, this was maybe the best possible record of everything that I truly believe about the world was was in chatting about these these chapters with you guys. Um, you know, I thought about it in, leading up to the birth of, of my daughter. Well, if you needed a, a time capsule, mm-hmm. right? And everything that I believe, um, you know, about democracy, about uh, gender, about uh, humanity and, and what, it, what it means to live a good life, it was in our it was in our podcast and um but i couldn't have done it i could not have done it if i just sitting there you know sat there reading and writing to myself it required a dialogue with the two of you uh, a trialogue so the the heroic context of this is lex re-listened to the whole podcast especially the second half you've said multiple times yeah yeah the, the last <laughs> couple of episodes multiple times but i did in the last month i listened to everything again and so uh more of so maybe that a moment yeah before we do it just one, yeah. one more point that i wanted to bring up just connected to um what you were just saying there um very recently i, I was given a small book um by now i'm gonna i'm gonna forget the the full name but the it's a german writer kleist um, and I, you, you may have come across this, but it's a it's a little it's a little essay essentially about how the best way to elaborate your thoughts is by speaking to people about them. So, and in fact, he said that if you will, if you if you formulate them too intricately before you speak about them, chances are they'll come out in a jumble. But if you ha- if you want to know what you think, go and speak to somebody about it. And, and he said not necessarily somebody who knows, but just have somebody with whom you can enter into dialogue. And in in that sort of in that process, you will come to understand what you what you think, um, and I think that was very important for uh, for I think all of us probably in the in the many many hours we we spent together. Before we jump into the 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 summary of the previous Bloomcast, a couple of things I do want to flag up, which are sort of Ulysses related things, which have come into my life since the. Um, since the the last recording. So the first one, um, anyone in the UK may have seen this. I don't know if it was broadcast anywhere else, but the BBC Arena documentary series produced uh, an hour long, maybe an hour and a half long special about Ulysses Centenary uh, program. And this was wonderful because my impression was that it was equally, would be equally interesting for somebody who knew nothing about the book and to somebody who had studied it for, for many years. So there was, there were quite a lot of talking heads. There were people like Salman Rushdie, there was Howard Jacobson, there was Ema McBride, who was one of our readers. Um, Sylvia Whitman, uh, owner of Shakespeare and Company, was interviewed. She read a, uh, a little bit from Penelope. Um, but just one thing I wanted to, one person I wanted to flag up, who I, I know has books actually about Joyce in Dublin, um, is a Joyce scholar named Vivian Igo. Um, is fascinating um, presence in this documentary for a couple of reasons. Firstly, she is in possession of Molly Bloom's fire grate. So she tells this wonderful story where she she was Are walking... fictional characters allowed to own fire grates. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, the... so she was walking past Eccles Street when it was a condemned building. So oh, now yeah. I I believe there's a there's a hospital was built on there. But at the time there were these, these tenement houses which were which were being destroyed. She noticed that they were condemned, and she noticed that the door to number seven was open. She went in. She went upstairs to the top bedroom, 
and she took the the fire grate. Um, on the subject of Echo Street, another thing she flags up, which I hadn't hadn't seen in any of the supplementary material that I'd read, she has access to the Dublin Street Directory from 1904, which lists all the residents of every address in the city. And the entry for number seven Echo Street is listed as vacant. Um, and so if we're coming to the sort of the, the level of um, detail that Joyce went into, uh, he found a house that was actually vacant at the time and he put the, the blooms um, into it, which I think is quite remarkable. Listeners, there's a special glint in Adam's eye <laughs> that I only see when he's, when he's hit up on something very special. So, um, so thanks to, to Vivian Igo for that. Two more things very quickly. I, um, Mark O'Connell, uh, excellent writer, has written um, a lot about... Uh, transhumanism, about the apocalypse. Um, he's a really, really fascinating writer, published by Granter. Around the time of Bloomsday, he gave a paper um, at the Joyce Symposium in Dublin. Uh, and he, he wrote to say how, how much he enjoyed the, the podcast and how it helped him in his reflections about Ulysses. And he sent me the paper that he, that he, um, that he read from. And it's absolutely fascinating. And it's for the, I think particularly for the reason it talks about the effect that the city had on the book, but also the effect the book has now had on the city. Um, so I'm just going to read a very short section from it. Um, Mark writes, If you're a person whose perception of the world is shaped by literature, Dublin can feel less like a place that James Joyce wrote about than a place that is about James Joyce's writing. The city of his fiction exists in ghostly superimposition over the actual city, such as it is, and every street corner, every landmark, every fleetingly glimpsed stranger in a Macintosh can seem haunted by some Joycean revenant. If you're already thinking about Joyce to begin with, Dublin will continually provide you with reasons to continue doing so. He will not be escaped. He inheres in the city's bones. Um, and that's just, just a little taste. I don't know if Mark is planning on publishing this um, this paper anywhere, but it was really, really an extraordinary read. And the final people I just want to give a quick shout out to are Sean Doran and Liam Brown. Um, now, when we were doing this project earlier this year, I didn't think there was, I didn't think anything more crazy than what we were doing would be possible. <laughs> And yet I've discovered such a project. Um, so they are, they are the organisers uh, of the U Ulysses European Odyssey. And this is a two-year project across 18 cities, which began in Athens in uh, September 2022, funded by Creative Euro Europe. And essentially in each of the 18 cities is given a different chapter and they work with local artists to in some way embody and encapsulate that particular chapter in some sort of artwork or some sort of installation um it sounds completely brilliant and completely mad so if you if you take a look um, at their website um look do, do a google search for U ulysses european odyssey and uh, find out if it's coming to your city um lex intro ebo ad altari dei sing in me muse and through me, tell the tale of that man and man and woman of twists and turns. That complicated man and man and woman who from the heights of Holy Troy ransack the most magnificently impossible work of modern literature. In the name of those who throw up the tennis ball and in the name of those who smack it with a tennis racket and disrupt the course of modern literature in the name of those who relish the inner organs 
of beasts and fowls and who with the butcher cleaver carve this holy work into 15-minute bits and distribute them to a hundred readers to read from all over the world and send their, their files to be edited in the name of those who take their first tentative steps into Ulysses, as if on Sandy Mount Strand at 8 a.m. and wonder what the hell is the ineluctable modality of the visible. In the name of those who descend into Hades and ascend back into windy Aeolus, avoiding untold windiness and the hurricane of plum stones that descend from on high, in the name of those who peruse this book in the National Library and who with us believe that with Shakespeare, those who have a will, Anne Hathaway, with those who believe in the Ormond Hotel that we can welcome the great Trelandos, the great suspensions, and yes, the great ambassadors of the tone deaf, with those who believe, as we do, that to be in Barney Kiernan's pub is to know the difference between the one-eyed and the two-eyed, and who wish to be the latter, though it may involve biscuit tins being thrown at our heads. In the name of those who see the fireworks on the beach and who must discover, perhaps to their chagrin, the most sublime and magnificent hand job in all of Western literature. <laughs> in the name of those who attend at the maternity hospital and who are stunned and blinded like oxen by the sun, by the costume parade of literature that causes so many to throw their copy of Ulysses out the window. In the name of those who would stage an unstageable radio play at the risk of offending the delicate sensibilities of the ladies such as Biddy the Clap and Cunty Kate. In the name of those who capture the mood of the cabman shelter, who would lead the horde of Islington goths and ravers after the full night of revelry into their caramel cappuccinos at 7 a.m. in Starbucks. In the name of those who would follow with Bill McKibben the water through the pipes and who would see all systems for what they are and who would defy the laws that tell us that parallel lines can never intersect. In the name of those who will read the eight sentences and follow them in the loops of infinity and kiss with us the yellow smell melons from all the way from the Bon Marché in Paris to the Atlas Mountains in the name of our holy guru, Professor Declan Kybird, who taught us how democracy is the art of teaching and learning from one another, who told us and taught us how James Joyce uh, brings together the archaic and the avant-garde, the bohemian and the bourgeois can all shake hands and find a place for one another in this little republic of letters in the name of Budgeon, in the name of Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, in the name of Harriet Shaw Weaver, and of course of Sylvia Beach. Let us call forth the blooms, the two-eyedness, the kindness and curiosity, the nonviolence in public transport and universal basic income, the unbounded vitality of Molly, and Stephen, who seeks against all odds to live the life of the artist and write the whole damn thing up to keep us busy for another hundred years. In the name of the Omphalos, in the name of the consciousness of bat and octopus, Bloomcasters here, readers from Trieste to Pasadena. I, Buck Mulligan, friend of Bullock befriending bards, I say amen. Yes, we will. Yes, come up, Kinch, and pass me another holy snot rag. Thank you. <laughs>
Bravo. <laughs> so that was the, the, the accessible recap for, for, for people who haven't Purely listened factual. to Purely factual. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. So there you go. If you didn't see it last time. <laughs> Et voilà. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Should we do some, well, we're going to do some readers, um, reader questions. Mm. Yes. Curated reader questions. So you, this has been building up. So now, we, now we've, we've had six months of suspense and mm-hmm. it's time for us to <laughs> resolve it. Thank you to Patricia Donnelly, who writes, once I finish Ulysses, I imagine you have now, Patricia, and take a deep, very deep breath. I want to tackle Finnegan's Wake. Get on you. I would love your recommendations for resource books, podcasts, or audible readings of Finnegan's Wake to help me tackle it in a similar manner as described above. Mm. Patricia, I have nothing to offer you apart from my heartiest good luck. Okay, just a quick round the table. Have any of you guys read Finnegan's Wake? I, so, very quick round, just very quick. So, I have so the, the week after Bloomsday, I said to myself, well, this is it. So I go, go walk in a Shakespeare and Company on a bright June day, and I say, this is my chance. I, gotta, I, buy, I buy a copy of Finnegan's Wake. And that same day, complete, uh, complete coincidence, I call one of my oldest childhood friends, Chris Fabian, who is now working for UNICEF in, um, in Geneva. And he also recently had a, a, a daughter and said to me, uh, well, you know, reading to these kids is super important and to get the rhythm of the language. I've been reading Finnegan's Wake to my daughter. I got about 150 pages in and then I, you know, she shifted gears. But 150 pages into Finnegan's Wake is pretty impressive. So I would say my one piece of advice is read it out loud. And I read about the first 15 or so pages and I read it out loud and it was, it was great. And I couldn't imagine reading it without reading it out loud. But the implicit advice in your response is have a daughter. Yeah, <laughs> to whom daughter. you can read it to. <laughs> yeah. Or borrow one. Borrow a small <laughs> female child and start reading it to her. Before this takes a turn down alleys, we don't particularly want it to go down. Um, I would say I don't, um, I haven't read Finnegan's Wake and I know it's always quite foolhardy to recommend a book you haven't read. But I do know that the uh, great, um, what would you call him, a mythologist, I guess, a theorist of myth, Joseph Campbell, wrote a book about Finnegan's Wake. Um, he was a he was you know myths were his hero of a thousand faces, heroes of a thousand faces. What he's best known for, and his lectures are wonderful, amazing, really amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I haven't read this book, but I can only imagine that if you want uh, an accessible, erudite, beautifully written guide to Finnegan's Wake you could probably do worse than read the Joseph Campbell. And I will point out that um, the book by Frank Bedgen, James Joyce, The Making of Ulysses, finishes with a chapter on what was then called Work in Progress, which is, so Finnegan's Wake as it was being written. And I found um, a copy of this book, uh, James Joyce, The Making of Ulysses, uh, relatively easily on abebooks.com, a good place to get independent uh, independent books um, or to get books from independent booksellers. So I would recommend uh, checking with Frank Bedgen as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next so, question. okay, Christopher Brown writes saying, just listening to your Hay Festival piece and wanted to reach out. I've been listening and reading along since February. As a dyslexic, Ulysses has been a little too much for me in the past. I managed to get to around chapter three, but hit the wall. Plus, if I'd gotten past that, I think sirens would have finally done me in. <laughs> yeah, Christopher. Um, so, Christopher, <laughs> so first of all, you are in very good company with people who hit chapter three and promptly decide that there are other books they would rather read. And it's not... An accident, because as we as we said in one of the first episodes, Joyce writes the first two chapters, Telemachus and Nestor, in clean, crisp, funny prose. You don't get maybe all the references, but there's nothing difficult really about the scene with Buck Mulligan on the tower or the scene of Stephen in, in the in the school. 
But when you are imported into the inner monologue of Stephen on the beach, uh, this becomes uh, a slog. And it still is for me. I will say that chapter three, um, what I call the Proteus problem, is remains the biggest a- a barrier to readability of Ulysses. Now, fortunately, even though this has become a barrier in the past, uh, we have a solution to offer, which is that those of you who uh, have listened to the sequence of readers, uh, Shakespeare and Company, friends of Shakespeare and Company reading Ulysses, will note that Proteus is read uh, by Aishian Hutchinson, um, and a fantastic performance. And I think Proteus actually makes a lot more sense read aloud. And I think Aishin Hutchinson's uh, voice should be inserted somehow uh, in digitally into every copy of Ulysses that is sold from henceforth. I think it does really help the fact that Aishin is a uh, fantastic poet as well. Like to really, this, he, he really gets something, he connects with the language um, in a way that I think even if you're, even if the words themselves stump you, there's something about the rhythm and there's something about the uh, the way that the sentences connect that he that he captures and that make it and if not completely comprehensible allows a certain Al, how did you feel about Stephen on the beach when you got to Stephen on the beach was that like a moment of Oh, when he's walking with the sure, intellectual sure, sure. Medal, no, because I'm thinking, you know, what I was when I was reviewing for today, I was remembering that my first introduction to Ulysses was actually at university in a kind of survey literature course, and we read um, Bloom on the Beach. We read the Gertie yeah. McDowell episode. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea what was it disheartening. Um, <laughs> I just thought. This is probably a preview of coming attractions, <laughs> and <laughs> and you know I signed up for this. There's so a lot more to go. So <laughs> you know I didn't know what in the ineluctable mode of the of visible. the visible meant. Um, but I'm pretty sure you could skip that chapter and go right to Bloom cooking breakfast sure and not really lose. I kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all coming out now, isn't it? <laughs> ineluctable. It is true, and I know people. I mean, a lot of the guides speak about this, but the moment you get to Bloom cooking breakfast. That's it's relief. Relief. Oh, it's a relief. Oh, I can understand it again. Oh, oh my gosh. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was Joyce's sigh of relief because, you know, from the first pages of Portrait of the Artist, he was in yes, yes, Stephen yes, Dedalus's yes. brain until mm-hmm. that moment of 8 a.m. when Bloom is cooking. Actually, on the um, the subject of just uh, abandoning it, Christopher, I, I, I realized I was actually inadvertently repeating a falsehood um, throughout the previous 10 episodes of Lying. I think you... Another way of saying it, lying, <laughs> inadvertently repeating a falsehood is a really nice well, way of saying it. I think soften no, it. Slightly. I'm not a politician. I'll tell you what, I, I genuinely forgot. So I noticed a, um, a copy of the annotated um, Ulysses, the Penguin oh, yeah. Classics edition, oh, um, uh, with the Declan Kybert introduction, um, which I had completely forgotten I owned. And which was actually a gift from my partner in 2011. Mm. Um, and I know that because she inscribed it. And there's a bookmark uh, halfway through Skiller and Charybdis. Um, and so I realized, okay, that was an aborted attempt. I didn't That's, realize that uh, I'd yeah. completely forgotten I'd made. How interesting. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, it, it, it happens repeatedly, seemingly. No, I think, but I think, again, this is one of those cases where, you, where if you hit a bump, jump over it, right? There's nothing that happens so critically either on the beach with Stephen or in the National Library and Skiller and Charybdis that that you would that would you know blemish another you know rest of the book and when i first read it i'd skipped essentially skipped over ox and the sun mm-hmm. and it it took two or three you know attempts to real and now ox and the sun was one of the mm-hmm. chapters i enjoyed the most this time around yeah, even though yeah, yeah. The, you guys just on disagreed. ox and the sun uh, one of the things that i kept thinking about ever since we well we read and spoke to declan kybert 
was the fact that I always held up that chapter as being just sort of an example of Joyce's obscene erudition and right, obscene mastery, learnedness. Right. Yeah. And as Kybert points out, basically it's him essentially parodying two guides to English literature. Anthologies that were yeah, given to the Irish and all colonial. Seemingly every yeah. school kid yeah. at that time would have read. Yeah. And I just find that that's so wonderful. And, that just, and just having that little insight... I think will help a reader to to tackle it. So so not so you don't feel that you're facing somebody who has everything in his kind of weaponry. No, it's somebody who is sort of employing these kind of you know these these texts, these these little kind of helpers that he was given, and and using them and using them to great effect and turning them into something into something greater. And I think that was just really inspirational. Yeah, well, I also th- I've been thinking so much about this actually too, which is that. Um, just the feeling feeling of feeling uncomfortable or any kind of discomfort and why um, we should actually embrace that and work through it. You know, yes, you could, we could, they are bumps and one could just skip over them. But I also think um, what's so great about this book is it forces the reader to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And there's actually been interesting um, work done on this recently. There's a really good book that I'd recommend called Friction mm-hmm. by a professor, um, I think at UC, she, at one of the UC schools, um, called Anna Zing. Um, and it's basically about how kind of 21st century in the West has done everything in its possible power to remove any kind of friction, um, whether that's, you know, interpersonal friction or friction on your commute or friction with your use of technology. And of course, there's there are externalities to the lack of friction. But it's really important um, that as humans, we experience feelings of discomfort and not everything should should be kind of coming and falling into our lap seamlessly and that we should feel happy and and flowing all the time. Um, and so, and I think probably a lot of contemporary literature does that. And maybe that's why you were feeling dissatisfied after you finished this book is because there's not really much challenge out there. Um, and so I would say, yes, jump over it if it's really troubling you, but also maybe interrogate your feelings of discomfort and and friction because it's it's a a good thing yeah it can help you actually figure out you know what you like and what you don't like and um as you say you have to unless you encounter friction you um don't really know who you are what you believe you know if everyone always agrees with you if everything's easy how do you know who you really are you know i think Mm -hmm. that's something that uh in a you know social media seamless advertising age a book like ulysses can really deliver is a series of deeply fun but also some uncomfortable experiences mm-hmm. and uncomfortable experiences are the ones we grow from right we have a question from robin dreyer um apologies if i'm not uh, pronouncing that correctly or could be dreyer um, robin begins with effusive compliments which it would be immodest for um for, for us to read out here but um, all about then, all to you, right? They were all they were all compliments. Oh yeah, to oh, yeah you. completely. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> the sound editing was just impeccable. <laughs> you know, that's the only thing we've got complaints about. But let's not uh, let's not dwell on that. Let's not dwell. Um, but um, Robin, he or she, they uh, come up with uh, a really interesting point, actually. And I'll just, I'll just read um, read what they write. Forgive me if I somehow missed this. But I was struck by one thing that I'm not sure was explored, although Kyber touched on it briefly in your conversation with him. That is the odd and remarkable way that vast amounts of important information about Stephen, Bloom, Molly and Bloom and Molly's families of origin are filled in only in the final two sections. 
I know a lot was said about this being a book meant to be read twice, but I didn't expect that to include so many details that contribute significantly to our understanding the motivations and actions of important characters being withheld until the very end. Quite a payoff for the persistent and patient reader. And yes, an invitation to read it again, knowing all these things from the beginning. So Robin, this totally underscores what I was just saying, which is that what does one do in the face of friction? One has to be patient and persistent. And to you borrow your phrase payoff, the payoff is greater. That's what's so great about, I think, suffering through something is that you feel when you finally get to the other side of it or you finally are rewarded, you feel that real sense of achievement. Whereas if everything's handed to you in your pers- you know, personality-shaped, individually-shaped mold, you don't get that sense of of payoff. I also would like to kind of query that idea of um, what constitutes important information, because it's true that there are lots of kind of details that we discover, but I don't recall the experience when I read them of being, ah, that explains that, and that is, I think my, my sense of what Joyce is doing by essentially kind of, what would you say, top-loading or bottom-loading this information is actually stressing, in a certain way, its, its lack of importance to um to what's going on like so these details like you know the possibility that and this is you know this is this is uncertain because of the way it's phrased in the book but the possibility that molly might have jewish origins for example um it's just sort of it's thrown out there and i think it's thrown out there because in a sense it is kind of throwaway compared to the the journey that we've been on up to up to this point yeah i mean there's there's something kind of so much so much in this, this is a great question i mean on the one hand we do learn a lot about Bloom from those first two pages. I mean, I think Joyce said this to Budgeon. You learn more um, about a man from how he makes his eggs than how he goes to war. And and so from his, the way he he addresses the cat, you know, the words kindly and curiously, the way he brings breakfast to Molly, and the, and the jingle jangle, the idea of secrets. He has a little secret, uh, you know, letter from his, from his uh, flirtatious love interest. You get a lot about Bloom in two pages. However, um, meeting Bloom and getting to know Bloom is much more like getting to know a real person in real life than it is um, having a you know a character in a realist novel explained to you or a character in a movie. Usually, you know, in a in a, in a superhero type movie, you learn all of the essential things about that you know that, that superhero and the exposition. You learn what their powers are and why they're why they're so great. And um, or in any Hollywood movie, really. And whereas in real life, it's much more like Ulysses, in which case you you, as you say, Alice, you have to be patient and you have to really open your ears and um, and and listen with your with your whole heart um, to what someone is is telling you. And then every so often you'll get this flash of insight Um then there's another little piece which I love, which is that, as we know, Joyce didn't have the end of the book in mind when he wrote the beginning. Yeah. And in fact, up to the point when he finished Ithaca, where we, where Bloom you know, and Stephen are, are together in, in Echo Street and, and Bloom falls asleep, he didn't know he was going to be writing one other chapter. And he writes Penelope, which is, as we've talked about, the chapter of infinity, the chapter that creates the figure eight, the loop, the eight sentences, Molly's birthday is eight, their head to tail in bed, which makes an eight. I mean, all of these things that... I mean, if he'd somehow had that in mind at the beginning, you would think, God, what a miraculous genius James Joyce is. But I think it's, in a sense, even more admirable that 
in improvising, sort of like a jazz musician who doesn't know where they're going to end when they begin, Joyce comes up with this perfect way of ending in between Ithaca and Penelope. And we learn so much, as, as Robin points out, so much about Bloom's inner life and about Molly's inner life in the last hundred pages of the book that then gives this burst of energy and you want to start all over again. You want to you know, keep going around the loop and, uh, uh, you know, of infinity. And uh, I, I just can't imagine a better, a better way of, of, uh, of closing this, uh, this great epic. Just to pick up on that point about the, um, you know, the, the Hollywood movies and the kind of origin story thing, um, which in a way I think the aforementioned Joseph Campbell was inadvertently responsible for, but by coming up with this idea of the kind of monomyth has shaped sort of Hollywood movies for, for generations now. Um, but I remember a few years ago now watching the uh, Netflix series about Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, this terrifying um, nurse character in, in, the, in the original book, in the original movie. And it was essentially her background story. And apologies to any of the creatives who worked on it, if you're listening, but I thought it was awful. And I thought it was awful because one of the things that's terrifying about Nurse Ratched... You don't know why she's that You don't know why she's doing it. And in fact, it's that she's not exceptional. And again, maybe this comes back to systemic forces, which we were talking about earlier. And what this series tried to do was to explain and over-explain and over-explain again why she became the nurse that she did and in a way kind of it's a very american it's a very american juvenile impulse to want everything to have a reason right americans are so bad at being comfortable i mean i say this as an american so bad at, at our popular culture always seeks to have uh to provide happy endings right it's the it's the domination of walt disney in our culture that that demands the the happy ending and and i think that as we saw in ulysses the happy ending um, comes in Nautica. He, he, well, <laughs> if we only had a drummer to give a rim shot to that, to that, to that little like the that sleigh little, bells, the, like the sleigh bells, we're going to add those in in, in post production. <laughs> no, that that you know that jo- James Joyce does not want to give a fairy tale, either a fairy tale beginning or a fairy tale ending to Ulysses. That um, you know, modern readers will look at this and be like, wait, but Stephen should stay over at, at Bloom's house, and that that's the way it's supposed to end, right? That's the resolution, Ulysses. No. Right. Because, as we said, in a two eyed world where everyone has a beginning, a middle and ending of their story, the the collective story never ends. Mm -hmm. And that's what Joyce is telling us, is that there will be another day that we go on to June 17th and Stephen's story continues and he ends up writing Ulysses and Bloom's story continues. And maybe, you know, Bloom and Molly um, find a new chapter of their marriage. And that's much closer to the meaning of, of our real life than just the fairy tale. I wonder, um, to respond to your point too, Robin, that it really struck me as I was reviewing the book um, for this essay that I wrote, which I'm going to read a little bit from, um, his, his the way that he uses Circe. I mean, we talked about Circe as kind of going into the subconscious of the novel, but reminding myself that really for him that was an exercise in repurposing and revisiting all of the ideas mm. and objects yeah. and characters um, in the novel to kind of subsume them, to use them all up and then discard of them so that he could march on to this final three-part ending. So I think in some ways, maybe the reason we get these new pieces of information is because he himself has had this very intense study of the first, you know, 15 chapters of the book before he goes on to the last three. And so maybe in that process of making, I mean, he made long, long lists of everything that's everything that has appeared thus far. Maybe in that process, he realized, oh, that there are some spots that need to be filled in, and that's why they come at the end. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. 
we have a question from Sam Jordison. Um, it's a, a second or third question, I think, uh, from Sam. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thank it's you, great Sam. to see you again. <laughs> so Sam um, is, well, my editor at Gallybega Press. Um, well. And he was a big fan <laughs> of the Bloomcast and um, a repeated corresponder. And he comes with a fascinating question. Um, he says, I have a question, although it's one I slightly hesitate to put forward because one of the things I've loved about the Bloomcast is that they've so cheerfully ignored the politics around the Joyce estate and warring academics. Um, so he says, do reject this one if it sours the tone. We will not reject it, Sam. Um, I've been really fascinated by the things you've said about Joyce thinking of Ulysses as a book for every kind of reader and not just for the academics. And it occurred to me that a project like the Shakespeare and Company readings wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. The same will go for any book that's under copyright, of course, but I also can't help thinking that there might have been something particular about the Joyce estate that kept the book fenced off from the general public consumption and enjoyment, which is quite a negative way of looking at things. So maybe I should turn it, this into a question by asking if you by asking if you hope that we might be entering a new era of Joyce appreciation where it becomes much easier to share and discuss his books. I should also put that in the context that at Gally Baggett Press, they published a book by Alex Phoebe called Lucia mm. um, about, right. um, I've heard about, about um, Joyce, uh, Joyce and Nora's um, daughter, uh, Lucia. Uh, and um, as far as I know, this, I mean, this was still while Stephen Joyce was alive. And as far as I know, they didn't um, get into any um, any hot water about it. But um, my feeling is that I think we are probably going to enter a new um, a new era of, of Joyce appreciation yeah. and Joyce enjoyment and Joyce adaptations. Like, I think it is, I completely understand the, um, the, the desire by the family while it was still in copyright to protect uh, Joyce's works. But I also have the, the, the sentiment that there are certain works that tran in, in some way transcend uh, this kind of proprietary approach to them. And Ulysses, of all the books, feels like that kind of... It's a bit like when, you know, Happy Birthday was under copyright. And I think a judge probably in the US just said, you know, this is completely ridiculous. That song is so, you know, culturally important and, and, and sort of omnipresent that you can't own copyright in it. I'm not saying that the Joyce family should have been stripped of the copyright. It's completely academic now, but I kind of I do agree with Sam. I think there was probably a, the the book and its appreciation, its enjoyment, and its and its kind of breaking free of the academy was probably in some way straitjacketed by uh, the the approach of the Joyce estate. Even though, I, you know, I understand why they would want to protect the work. Yeah, I mean, even if we look to, I think there are two things. First, that, of course, as you get further away from the death of the author and the death of their family members and survivors, people who knew them, then it, everything kind of loosens up. Um, I think the second thing is to look to the book itself as a, as a directive on this, which is the way that Joyce uses culture so loosely. I mean, he's trampling all over these literary greats. And so I think he would be... I don't know his his own relationship to the text. Um, I do know that Beckett was intensely obsessed with people trampling on his works. Um, so, and I was just thinking about that this morning, actually. If, for instance, there was one in... Um, very, very controlling about staging, for instance, of Waiting for Godot. So there was example where one production replaced a pile of twigs with a tree and he was very upset because it disrupted the the triangulation of the animal the mineral and the vegetable <laughs> yeah. and and tried to shut it down i mean he was 
constantly trying to shut down productions of Godot that broke with his vision. So I do think there's a sense of when these big literary egos die, it takes a while for, for that control to wear off. But I also think that Joyce is actually very well placed. Um, we can look to Joyce as a way to to answer your question and I think he would say use me and use me freely just as a quick aside has that loosened up with Beckett, Beckett since yeah. his death yeah yeah. yeah 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 okay yeah before today I was very tempted to say Stephen Joyce was one of the most miserable bastards in the history <laughs> of, of modern literature um I mean it's 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 he's legendarily mean-spirited um and not only protective but um you know, ad hominem attacks on Joyce scholars. Uh, I mean, you could Google Stephen Joyce. Uh, you'll you'll read all that you want about um, how to alienate people <laughs> from from uh, from studying a great work of literature. And moreover, Ulysses, as you say, Adam, is it defies um, the very notion of the kind of dynastic. Uh, protection of the work. I mean, I think, you know, Declan Kybert said one of Joyce's biggest mistakes um, was giving the Homeric schema to Stuart Gilbert, that, that you know, once he did that, he was basically saying, okay, now you academics go run with, you, now this book is your book, as opposed to the book being one of mass literacy and the working man, which, which Declan Kybert and, and I think some of us would, would agree um, it could have been and, and maybe should still be uh, a democratic book, a book for 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 everybody, and so Joyce was, as as Professor Kybert said, his own worst enemy in, in that sense. I mean, if you name a child Stephen Joyce, you know you're 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 turning the idea of Ulysses into a dynastic possession, mm-hmm. right? And and it, this book is completely against every principle of dynastic authority, every principle of rule from above. I mean, it's it. You just have to read Ulysses for five minutes to know that this is not a book that should be protected like a fortress. It's a book that should be opened up, that speaks to the, the value of public space and public um, uh, interaction and dialogue, and, and everybody should have a piece of it. And as you say, Alice, it's a book that mashes up and, and refers to and tangles with all of the great works of the past. And of course, you know, Homer, a poet, any work of oral, the Irish bards, how could you possibly copyright an oral tradition, you can't, because it's not an individual work of genius. It's a collective effort where each individual adds, um, you know, something unique to it. But it's fr- it's 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 a collective property, and so you know, I think I, I don't wish anybody ill, but I think um, you know, Stephen Joyce uh, was 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 Go not to hell. was not a fr- <laughs> yeah, except that this morning someone uh, a, a dear friend gave me a children's book called uh, The Cat and the Devil, which is uh, a letter that James Joyce wrote to his eight-year-old grandson, Stephen Joyce. And it's illustrated and it takes place in France. And Stephen Joyce adds a very touching letter at the end. And so now today, I'm hopelessly confused. I wanted to hate Stephen <laughs> Joyce, but I just read a story you know, that he edited uh, to my baby daughter. And so I don't know what to think. I also want to pick up on this question um, by Sam to just say a few words about something that I think as I was reflecting on, I didn't listen to the whole podcast again, although I certainly, I'm sure will one day. I didn't Thinking even about... to it when we were recording it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> you edited the damn thing, Adam. All right. You're excused. All right. Um, Pass me that whiskey bottle. Thinking about uh, what we possibly missed, right? Because, you know, we're not these, we're not one-eyed, all-seers, all-knowers of the text. I certainly wasn't. This is my first time reading it. Um, and as I was reflecting... Um, 
on the podcast, I think, over the last six months, I, I do slightly think other things that we possibly missed were discussions about religion and Bloom's Jewishness, um, plus conversations about colonialism and British subjugation of the Irish. What do you and want to say about that? Well, I don't have huge things to say. I have I have a, a place. There's a chance. You have I listeners. Have... <laughs> you have an audience. What should we know about Bloom's Jewishness and, you know, the colonial I don't know. I think that's part of the problem. I mean, it's just, it's not, it wasn't in our kind of... Um, departing interest as I was saying to you before the you know before we started that we got into these grooves of subjects and that we'd never really kind of dug that groove in part based on our own interests in part based on our own backgrounds um but based I think definitely the question of colonialism I do have a place that readers can go um to think about this question further which is to say what does a post-colonial kind of response to the odyssey look like and another really brilliant retort is Derek Walcott's Omarose, which I've yes, read various yeah. times. It's a brilliant epic poem. Um, it Not only because it also departs from the Odyssey, but it's example, again, of this post-colonial writer responding to a colonial context. And I also think that, like Joyce, he has similar preoccupations about history's implication in colonialism. So we hear early on in, in, in Ulysses, you know, Mr. Deasy says history is to blame. Stephen says history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. And I was rereading Omarose this morning and I found this lovely short sentence, but I think it speaks to um, the achievement of, of Ulysses, but certainly the achievement of Omarose. Walcott writes, It was one of those Saturdays that contain centuries, with the strata of history layered under heel, which earth sometimes flas- flashes with its mineral signs, can lie in a quarter shard. I love this idea of the strat of history layered under heel. Mm. And the, and sa- I, the Saturday that contains centuries as well. I mean, yeah, the Saturday that contains centuries. But for centuries. the fact it's a Thursday, that could be about <laughs> Ulysses. Exactly. Yeah. Go read Derek Walcott. Yeah, everybody. I do. <laughs> Although I think, <laughs> we missed, I think we missed that discussion. I think he picks it up. But this is the thing, I think, and this comes back to the discussion at the beginning, um, is that I, I tell you what I was listened the fuck out of would be a Bloomcast bike with three completely different people with oh, completely great. different interests. Wow. Maybe, maybe, exactly for this, maybe for this spring we should... Uh, well, they should. I mean... <laughs> they should. I mean, we should invite them in and then just, you know, pour them tea and whiskey and get because them going. I think that's, that's it's, it's you know, you get from a book what you bring to it. Of course, we exactly. We brought our backgrounds and our interests, as you said, and, you know, we made our Bloomcast. But, you know, just imagine, as you said, with three people, you know, maybe... There's somebody uh, with more of an interest, uh, you know, spring, more knowledge about in. Jewish history. I'd love to know. Yeah. Of what, sorry? No, Aishin Hutchinson. I, I, oh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or Margaret Atwood or Sally Rooney or, or all the okay, people. Okay, that's our Sylvia. next. It's Aishin, Margaret and Sally. <laughs> it could be a great, th- it could be a great trio. Season two, yeah. Yeah, that could be, that could be. No, I mean, there's one thing I think that we could note, we could note about on the colonial subject, because as you say, Alice, we didn't, three of us have a lot of personal background in, in the field of post-colonial studies, but I would say that what I learned from reading um, you know, Professor Kybert and other, and, other, uh, and um, some great works of, of criticism uh, by men and women from different countries is never forget Ireland was the first colony of the British Empire, yes. that they, their language was eradicated um, system, systematically, um, that they were undercapitalized, that all of their resources were, you know, expropriated. Uh, they were ruled by a foreign language, you know, speaking ruling class. So, I mean, James Joyce, who's looked at as this dead white male of, of you know, the Western canon, is, I think, a voice of a, of a colonized people, in a sense. And what is Joyce's response? I think this is really instructive. Joyce, unlike Yeats and Lady Gregory, 
didn't want to uh, restore a mythologized Irish past. He said, okay, we can't go backwards. What we should do is to, is to write an epic that places value on who we are today. And on the everyday people who go, and you see in Wandering Rocks, by the way, you know, the, the flattened character of the Viceroy who goes through the streets and it ends with, you know, with the, with the, with the closing door and then, you know, Bloom leaving the Ormond Hotel with a fart and all these, you know, things that basically say, see you later, British Empire. But, but to move forward as a free Ireland did not require them to give up the English language, did not require them to go back to, you know, to make Ireland great again. It, it required... Um, taking stock and valuing everyday people. And, and the fact is that James Joyce spoke English. He wanted to speak English. He wanted to benefit from the best of, of, the, of the Western canon that he had been taught in by the Jesuits. But he also wanted to, to surpass it and make fun of it and to, to write something original. And I think, uh, you know, as someone in a, uh, writing from a, from a culture that had been colonized, Joyce's response, I think, is, is very powerful. Um, and you know, I think it's worth, it's worth taking seriously as um, a work of, you know, post-colonial thought. In a, in a Just as a, a side point that um, the point you make about, you know, Ireland being uh, Britain or England's first colony, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European yeah. Union, has just this week uh, annoyed quite a few right-wing newspapers in the UK by saying exactly that, mm-hmm. by, by comparing, uh, by, well, by drawing parallels between uh, the, the English in Ireland and, and the Russians in Ukraine. And sure. as, as you can imagine, it went down terribly well with publications like the Daily Mail. A nightmare from which we're trying to awake. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we have a, a final note from uh, Ronan Hackett writes and said, I understand you have one more Q&A Bloomcast to do. Correct. Uh, correct. <laughs> you would be uh, correct. Uh, so while we've got you, I'll ask you a broad question. Do you think the podcast format can stand as legitimate form of literary criticism? Alice McCrum. Oof, well, I, I said I wasn't going to wade into questions of, leg- of legitimacy or illegitimacy. Um, and yet here we go. Uh, no, I, I think it's, it's, well, it's interesting that you said for you, Adam, and I, I definitely think we work through problems, so many problems individually, collectively through talking about it. But what I realized after the podcast is for me, how I really, I think, finally think about something. Certainly there's a process, but how I finally think about something is to write about it. And I found myself like, well, like like said, this is this the spring has been an enormous archive of great conversations. And I kept wanting to go back. Maybe it's my own impatience. Go back and say, what did we say there? What? And then I couldn't search it. And so in order to find the thing that we said, I'd there's have no to control F. I'd have podcast. to go back to the bloody episode and then try and roughly remember where we discussed this thing. All of that is to say... I don't know if it's literary criticism, but I responded to my ref- my reflection. So we've had these two lovely, more kind of creative, let's say, <laughs> um, reflections on the podcast. And my response was to, I wrote something in part because I think I've been really grappling not only with this question about the climate and the climate crisis, but also just essentially the kind of breakdown of the structure of a known world, um, which is the world that I grew up in, in the, in the kind of booming late 90s and early 2000s and we're moving into the 21st century which is a much more uncomfortable place to be Um, and so I used the book as a way to think about that and I wrote um, an essay called Weave Weaver of the Mind. Would you mind reading a little bit of it to us? Yes yes I would with great pleasure. As 2023 looms the structure of a known world is breaking down. Augmented reality gene editing, online streaming, touchscreen glass, as well as, lest we forget, bladeless fans and e-cigarettes, 
have all appeared in the last 20 years. In the last two, coronavirus made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt, novelist Arunrati Roy writes. While in the last 11 months, Europe and China experienced their warmest summers on record and major figures of a time gone by, Jean-Luc Godard, Shinzo Abe, Thich Nhat Hanh, Sidney Poitier and Elizabeth II have died. Faced with significant change, many are digging their heels into the comfort of the known. At the level of the individual, Roy continues, we are racing back and forth, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge a rupture. At the level of the state, we are attempting to regulate 21st century problems with laws designed 40 years ago. The French economist Julia Caget likens governing contemporary media outlets, for example, with legislator created before the internet to to regulating high-speed trains with laws designed for horse-drawn carriages. It doesn't work. At the level of the earth, we are struggling to live on a finite planet with ideas of infinite growth. It is increasingly uncomfortable and hot. How to proceed? Um, Here, James Joyce, who places rupture at the heart of Ulysses, is instructive. Though set in 1904, the book was drafted over seven years, from 1914 to 1921, in which scholar Declan Kybert notes there was a breakdown of the old equation between the structure of language and the structure of a known world. In simple terms, Kybert continues, the zones of scientific and technical knowledge had expanded massively, while the resources of language seemed to lag behind. Put another way, the familiar contours of today, radio, television, air travel, plastic, neon light, even windscreen wipers and zips, all arrived in the first two decades of the 20th century. But how, some wondered at the time, to render moving images on a still page, how to capture fresh sounds, the static of radio frequency, the roar of machine guns with old phrases, how, in other words, to respond to great change. Unlike his wistful nationalist counterparts, Joyce, one of the first to face the challenge, was exhilarated by the call to confront the new, or else to scrap the old. And in Ulysses, he does both. There's so much that's interesting in there, and in the in the rest of the uh, the essay, I don't know if you're going to make this available. I'll try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Any editors? I've sent it around. <laughs> um, one thing that that I that I really was wondering about, and I, I don't have any particular answer to this, is whether the times we are living in now are directly comparable to the time that Joyce lived through and the time he was writing about, from a from specifically from the perspective of technological change. Um, the thing that made me think this, I, I did an interview the other week with a scientist called Tom Mustill, whose book How to Speak Whale goes in, it's such a wonderful book, and it goes into essentially the, the, the quest to develop what in layman's terms might be called a Google Translate for whales. And it is, it's so extraordinary. Um, but one thing, just to kind of, um, not exactly a throwaway sentence, but one thing that he points out is that it wasn't until about, Basically, from the moment of the Big Bang up until 1880-ish, a sound happened, and that was it. That was it. It was gone. And then we started recording sound. Mm. And then within a space And then of, we started making podcasts with those sounds. Well, exactly. That came a little bit later. Um, <laughs> but then within the space of about, what, 40 years, you've got Ulysses, and you've got all of these technological changes that Joyce is confronting. I suppose with the exception of printing, which was obviously a much older technology, that, that idea of kind of preserving 
knowledge and thoughts and the world. So whether through photos, whether through sound, or performances, musical performances, yeah. you know, and, and, poetic performances. And I'm just wondering, historical events. Can we draw a parallel with today? Like, are there's are, are we on a, are we experiencing a similar rupture? Or is the are the changes we're facing today more sort of sort of evolution than revolution? I guess. I mean, I, I, yeah, I never thought of it quite that way, but I think I think there's there's a great argument that that is exactly what we're going through, right? That that if the I mean, I think Walter Benjamin Benjamin um, I should say right writes about this in the Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. The the idea of invention of he put it would started a little bit earlier, right? The early nineteenth century where it's the beginning of photography, that now once you have the, a mechanically reproduced image, um, you have an entirely different way of creating relationships with culture. Um, and But that's true. I mean, that we think of, when we see the Eiffel Tower for the first time, it's not for the first time because we've seen it a million times before on television and movies, etc. And so creating a relationship with the Eiffel Tower or with Shakespeare and company is mediated by all of these experiences we've, we've, we've had ahead of time. And and I think that that does change our relationship with every kind of, of, of culture. And now that the internet has radically changed the way we exchange information, it feels, yeah, it feels like we're living through another revolution. Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, of course, the nature of the change is different, but there's no question. I mean, even if you just think about, we're now very much firmly in the Anthropocene, so the age in which it's, it's man's um, effect on the environment uh, is that the kind of predominant effect of the environment that's totally new and so it's I, I think that probably the nature is different but the the amount of change is as enormous and that's why I was looking to the book as a basically as a way as a guide for how to act because there is this impulse to look to the past romanticize the past and want to kind of return to a past and actually it's very uncomfortable you have to you have to move with the times and I keep thinking about this question did it flow did did the passage did we let the passage of time move um and it means letting go of some things and embracing new things and being specific about that are we ready for a game since we're since we're yes. rattling toward the let's finish do let's Ra do it rapid fire yes here we okay. go so um in honor of the fact that we're also living through another world cup we're going to build each of us uh our own ulysses in the form of a fantasy draft now how it's going to work is uh, Ulysses is composed of 18 episodes. Each episode has uh, its Greek name from Telemachus to Penelope. We're going to go round by round and choose our own favorite chapters that we would take on our Desert Island version of, of, of Ulysses. So we're going to do we're going to do Adam, then Alice, then me. That's I get uh, first pick. First pick. Will I win then? Well, it depends. So <laughs> um, when you pick a chapter, it's now off the list. And I have uh, for those of you watching at home, I have a, a visual aid here to keep track of who chooses which of the 18 chapters for. Their Ulysses, their Thank Desert you. Island Thank Ulysses. you to everyone who's watching at home. Yes, and, exactly right. And, and then do we compare and see who has the And then at the end, okay. exactly. So, okay, so Adam, of all the 18 chapters, you have the very first pick. Which chapter do you pick and why? I pick Circe. Okay. And because Circe is the most Ulysses of all Ulysses chapters. I mean, it's, I don't know whether to say it's Ulysses squared or the square <laughs> root of Ulysses. But as we've discussed many times, it is everything is in there, not only present, but fully digested. Perfect. Alice. Uh, I pick Ithaca because it has 
the beautiful description of water and democracy and flowing time. Gosh, darn it, that would have been, that would have been my first pick. Okay, well then I <laughs> choose Penelope uh, because uh, it's, the, it's the chapter that set my hair on fire as uh, a 19-year-old and that I will never, ever get tired of inhabiting the consciousness of Molly Bloom. Round two, Adam Biles. Calypso. Calypso, why? It's the introduction to, to Leopold Bloom. It's the most accessible chapter in the book. And uh, if, you know, if, if people are going to love the book, they're going to love it through this chapter. Uh, very well done, Alice McCrum. Lystrigonians for its men, 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 seed cake and case for vegetarianism. Uh, I will then go to Cyclops. Cyclops, mm. the great chapter of The Two-Eyed, where we get not only the great flights of fancy, but we have the humanist pacifism of Leopold Bloom. Round and, three. And the citizen. And the citizen, of course, <laughs> one of the great characters in Gary Owen. Uh, round, tr- round three, Adam Biles. Uh, I'll take Nausicaa, because as we discussed, it contains Ulysses' happy ending. <laughs> Alice, round three. Oh no, I'm so lost. Okay, uh, Scylla and Charybdis. Uh, because you. Oh like... no, sorry. You... Hey, oh, sorry. Can you ask me again? Can you ask me again? I'm so lost. Round here. three, Alice. I pick Aeolus for his inclusion of newspaper headlines. I was going to use Aeolus. Oh, I'm That's so darn... sorry. That's, I mean, I feel betrayed. I will then now take. Uh, Wandering Rocks, because Ooh, Wandering Rocks choice. is not only the most cinematic, it's the middle point, and it contains, uh, there's a bit of a touch of the artist in Old Blue. <laughs> uh, round four, Adam Biles. <laughs> okay, I will take Eumaeus. Eumaeus, because you're a goth. Exactly. exactly. You're, it you're is those, Starbucks those post slime like 7 a.m. Starbucks. Uh, I'm, uh, this book is all about nostalgia, or the Nostos at least, and I'm nostalgic for okay. my early 20s. Alice McCrum? Okay, Skill and Charybdis. Okay. Because I realize I spend 85% of my time in libraries, um, and I love his fight between Aristotle and Plato. Fair, fair enough. Uh, I will choose for my round for Nestor, because I love the image of Stephen oh, yeah. as a teacher he's a fantastic mm. teacher and the image of him uh, correcting the exercise of the child and then uh, seeing up of Mr. DZ is one of my favorites round five Adam Biles <laughs> Telemachus Telemachus stately plump <laughs> buck mulligan there you go I don't need to say anymore <laughs> Um, Alice McCrum. Uh, Nausicaa for its description of uh, Roman. She, uh, no, Nausicaa's already gone. gone. Already gone. What? Nausicaa's gone. Yeah, Adam already chose Nausicaa oh. and it's round three. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Can you ask me again? Uh, we have round five uh, and now it's over uh, to you, Alice McCrum. Uh, okay, I pick Oxen of the Sun. Oxen of the Sun. I do. I do. And why? Because for its amazing display of the English language in evolution. Well, then you guys leave me no choice but to take sirens because uh, sirens got me that was to be higher up putting it, putting it, putting it in I'm the surprised. language of the fugue and the and the Sony La Cloche. Uh, Adam, uh, round six we have left for those of you keeping track at home. We have Proteus, <laughs> we have Lotus Eaters, we have Hades, and uh, that is it. Okay, so Proteus, Proteus, not on, not, not on a rock. Thanks for getting it off of our. <laughs> Off of our desert island. Um, Alice, you have Lotus, Lotus Eaters Lotus, Lotus. Obvious Lotus Eaters. Okay. I'm spending, I'm spending, I'm bathing at least once a day these days. Uh, <laughs> and that means that Bloom, and this, I don't feel like I got a, I got a, I got a, the wrong end of the stick here. Bloom uses this episode of the funeral, not only when he sees Stephen for the first time in, in his day, but he gets to look at uh, the, the city of Dublin from the carriage, think about trams, think about mm. foot and mouth disease, oh, and true. think about... That mortality is just part of the greater system that is Dublin. So, uh, to summarize, um, Adam Biles's Ulysses for his Desert Island will contain, in order, in chronological order, Telemachus, Proteus, Calypso, Nausicaa, Circe, and Eumaeus. I'll take that. 
Alice McCrum's uh, Ulysses on a Desert Island will be will begin with Lotus Eaters, then Lestragonians, Scylla and Charybdis, uh, Aeolus, Oxen of the Sun, and Ithaca. And my own Ulysses, left to me, will be um, it will be Hades, Sirens, Wandering Rocks. Nope, sorry, I take it back. My Ulysses will be Nestor, Hades, Wandering Rocks, Sirens and Cyclops together, which is only fitting, and then jumping to Yes, I Said Yes, I Will, Yes of Penelope. I'm going to say, I don't think we need to decide a winner here because I, looking at those three, I think they look exactly like us. <laughs> created the images of ourselves well like, I don't feel in any way jealous of your selection <laughs> <laughs> I think we each we, we each got our darlings didn't That's we so I think we did yeah 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 well okay. well so the last word in the podcast um, should be the last word in Ulysses was Molly Bloom the sun shines for you he said the day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hoth Head in the gray tweed suit and his straw hat, the day I got him to propose to me, yes. First, I gave him the bit of seed cake out of my mouth, and it was leap year like now, yes, 16 years ago, my God. After that long kiss, I near lost my breath, yes, he said. I was a flower of the mountain, yes. So we are flowers all, a woman's body, yes. That was the one true thing he said in his life, and the sun shines for you today, yes. Thank you. Goosebumps every time. Goosebumps every time. I'm sobbing every time. Um, so just before we finish, um, I just want to say a few thanks to people who didn't necessarily reach out with questions, but wrote us emails uh, just to, to generally broadly to say nice things about the podcast. So to Nicholas Shanahan, to Florence Boulet, to Bryson, to Orla Whelan, to Patrick Kennedy, to Stephanie Val, to Liam Norton, to Cynthia Martin, to... Richard Arnold, to Chris Tracy, to Gwendolyn Soper, to Ronan Cooney, to Ron Bonecamp, and to Petrina Blair. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you for your thank very you. kind thank and lovely you. emails. A couple of special mentions also to Mats Hogmark. Mats wrote to us a few times during the um, dur during during the, the, those six months. He also wrote to us afterwards. He followed us online. He was constantly retweeting things, constantly commenting. He was a big... He was our man in Sweden. He was wasn't our, he? our influencer, and he was he was tweeting in Swedish, which as as a as a descendant of Swedes, I appreciated that much. So and um, the final very special thanks to go to Silvia Regonelli, who we all met on Bloomsday. So Silvia, yes, we did. Is based in Italy, she's Italian, and she came she, she came up to uh, Paris for Bloomsday to to attend Grazie. Bloomsday at the shop to come to the Grazie. American Library, and particular thanks to her Ulysses widower Marcello, who. Um, had, had not read the book. Uh, and, <laughs> Hadn't even uh, heard of it. <laughs> and nonetheless accompanied Sylvia on this journey and took the photo that became the final photo of the podcast series. Um, so thank you, um, Sylvia. And thank you, thank you Marcello. Um, that's it. That. So... Trieste, Zurich, Paris, Paris. <laughs> New York, um, London, should we, should, we give, should we give our sign off one more time? <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> Thanks for listening. Was that me? Happy reading. A très bientôt.